0: Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this.
1: Uh, Dr. Koontz, to begin our show today, I, I don't normally come up with questions about William Barr, but uh, William Barr is a guest at the upcoming Making the Case conference for Issues cetera. Issues Etc. is a Lutheran talk radio show that has done a great deal of good in the history of the world so far as I'm concerned uh, in the last two years. They maybe have been on the other side of a, of a couple, shall we say, political topics where, where I might find myself. Uh, but, you know, William Barr, speaking of being on one side or the other of a number of political topics, um, I honestly don't know him from a hole in the he, wall. He worked for Trump and then got fired and there was a fight and I don't know, and I wasn't paying attention back then. Uh, so here's the question and I'll let you field it and I'll try to play off of you. Hello, Dr. Koonson and Pastor Fisk. Uh, was William Barr's involvement in data collection, 90s DEA, mass phone conversation collection and giveaway covered during any surveillance episodes that that we did know uh, because obviously i don't i don't know anything about the guy um i found out bar is speaking at a high profile lutheran conference this year and well i'm not surprised given um again what i said earlier i'll say it just that way you know that there's been a little bit of a what side of the playing field are you on well they're on that side um but but i'm sad he says about bars being tapped as an expert after all he's done to us liberty and dismantling of the constitution uh, perhaps bringing to light in Lutheran circles what Barr is responsible for before Barr speaks would allow those who think to have a clearer context when he speaks this summer. And so so I can't disagree with that. Like, enlighten me, Dr. Kuntz. Who is yeah. this guy? I honestly yeah. don't know him much.
0: Yeah. And I don't – I know people are upset with issues about this. I don't know what their connection is to Bill Barr or really what he's talking about there or anything. So you kind of have to go there to find out what their thinking is on this. He is a two-time attorney general. He was an attorney general in the first Bush administration, so Bush 41. And then he was also an attorney general during the Trump administration. But he has a long history in the federal government. His father also does, Donald Barr, Donald is a convert to Roman Catholicism from Judaism. I mean, he's ethnically Jewish. I don't know what he was practicing exactly, but Donald Barr, if I remember correctly, just off the top of my head here, was in the OSS, which is the predecessor to the CIA. William Barr was in the CIA, and there remains a question whether the CIA has former members strictly speaking, because it's the nature of its relationship, as has been revealed at various times, the church committee in the 70s, lots of other hints and peaks here and there, is that the CIA's integration into the American military-industrial-congressional, as we say with the original draft of Eisenhower's speech, military-industrial-congressional complex is is like a tent a set of tentacles. So it's everywhere there's a lot of you know suckers on the tentacles and there are a lot of tentacles and we don't know where they all go. We know that people leave the CIA apparently and then get anonymized. We also know that in certain election cycles lots of CIA quote alumni show up as congressional candidates at this point they're generally democrats the most prominent Non-democrat CIA alumnus, you might know of is if anyone remembers Evan McMullen, who was run as sort of the you know second coming of Mitt Romney against Trump because Romney wasn't running directly in 2016. So Barr was in the CIA, then he went into law, and then he went into government service. So this means that he has sort of bounced around things in DC and that. When he was in the Reagan administration, right? So this predates Bush 41. Bush 41 is Reagan's vice president. In the, in the Reagan administration, Barr was in something called the Office of Legal Counsel, which matters a lot for a given administration's self explanation about what it's doing. So, for instance, during Bush 43, John Yu, Y O O, you know, gave the rationale from, the Office of Legal Counsel, for why we were doing drone strikes and how that was okay. Barr is one of the really kind of godfathers of American neoconservatism in practice, because what he did was state a doctrine that really is not, has not been changed by Obama or Biden, but you might recognize from Bush 43, but he was stating it back in the Reagan administration, Which is what's called the unitary executive. Okay. Meaning that the president has basically unfettered authority, yes, over the executive branch, but that always because of the size of the executive branch, especially since the second world war, and especially because it controls not our, you know, tiny, tiny 1920s Department of War, we still called it, but our modern defense department, as well as intelligence agencies, that's control functionally over pretty much everything. Right. And so Barr is really important in our constitutional history, let's say, or interpretation of the Constitution in articulating that theory. His service in Bush 41's cabinet or also Trump's cabinet is therefore going to be in directions like that. It's also the source of some of the clashes, especially between him and Trump, because Trump is Trump was (laughs) articulating is maybe the wrong word expressing with varying degrees of clarity ideas about America and American government that do not mesh well with the neoconservatism that is really at the heart of both the Democratic and Republican parties at this point, certainly regarding foreign policy. We're always activistic, we're always idealistic, and we're always telling everyone else what he should do, and we will enforce it with force. Maybe this is now changing with the Biden administration. But Barr's really important as a figure for that reason, although relatively unknown because he's always been some kind of a bureaucrat.
1: So what could he potentially offer Christians? I mean, I don't know why he's been a I don't, all, so. I don't.
0: I don't particularly know. I also don't know, unlike certain other characters, especially from the Reagan and, and both Bush administrations, as well as to some degree, the Trump administration, but the Republican Party was a little more openly religious in the early 2000s back through the 80s. So unlike, say, a, a Pat Buchanan, who's, who's definitely a believing Roman Catholic or even um, George Tenet at the CIA at various times, the, the nature of, of Barr's Roman Catholicism has not, to my knowledge, been been integrated in any kind of big public way with what he's trying to say about how the executive should function or, or whether and how we should you know, prosecute the war on drugs, which is, a, which is a phrase from Nixon, but really ramps up under Reagan. Mm-hmm. And the, the question that the listener originally asked about the Drug Enforcement Agency is because it fell under his purview during, I mean, Bush 41, as well as Trump, and the the prosecution of that drug war through the DEA, which is under the Department of Justice, you know, yeah, of course, that involves surveillance. It all involves surveillance. Probably the reason we haven't just a really direct answer to your specific question. We didn't cover that because the NSA is much more important technologically and by virtue of its size than the fact that you can sort of assume if it's a government agency, especially a federal government agency or one large enough to be one like the New York police department, it's conducting surveillance on lots of people. You should, you should just assume that, right? So you get these scary articles about how they're going to, you know, (laughs) Chipotle doesn't have enough workers. So they're going to have robots make the chips and simultaneously like the airport in, I think Dallas is going to have, you know, people ensuring that you wear your mask. People, robots, <laughs> somewhat anthropomorphic robots ensuring that you wear your mask. You should just assume that you are being watched. I think that's probably the, the safest and, and wisest thing to, to do on the internet. But th- that growth of surveillance has gone under a variety of different names and has been justified in a variety of different ways. The war on drugs is one of those justifications, and so that would have fallen under Barr's purview, but there are lots of other things.
1: So surveillance, again, we did cover that with the NSA, and it's something that um, – I don't know. I guess I don't think about it enough – because of the assumption, like at this point, I, I'm not. It's <laughs> yeah. like, well, that's what's happening. So good or right. ill, that's just what's happening. And I can try to, you know, decrease my online footprint. But frankly, right. the, the motivation for that's not because they might see me using Logos software too much or something, you know, like that. Uh, the motivation is is to get into the real world and not be living in the Gnostic dream of of, of Meta. Right. Um, I think uh, out of what you just said there, the thing that two things struck me. One is that C- the CIA is Chitulu's official church. I-, I like that thought. Um, just the, the the tentacles are everywhere, and if you want to join a religion to worship the devil, um, that has uh, fingers in everything. Uh, well, the CIA sounds like a nice place for it to be. Um, not to accuse all of them of being necessarily diabolical, but uh, it it is it is globalism writ small. Here, to put it another way. Um, but then uh, more, more fascinating than that, really, because that's more just for fun, is uh, the unitary executive and, and therefore the assumption that the, the real U.S. government is the executive branch and that the the right. other two branches yep. are sort of – I mean they're there and they, they tax us and they pass budgets and stuff, but but they're not really the government. I mean, they don't they don't really do anything except for maybe right. distract us, and then sometimes yep. make a ruling that yes, I don't know, decided ahead of time a lot of times.
0: Okay, so yeah, keep me honest on going in three different directions because that's what I'm thinking right now. One direction is that the nature of the Central Intelligence Agency and the the danger that has always been recognized there, and also the reason that there is this interregnum between the end of the Second World War and the rise of many or the official recognition or so-called establishment. I'm a little dubious that it all disappeared, but establishment of things like the National Security Agency or the Central Intelligence Agency in 47. The reason there's an interregnum is because it was a very serious question after both world wars and the answers given were very different after both world wars whether we were going to stay on a war footing with agencies and capacities, especially in the executive branch of government, that were very dubiously constitutional, and probably most of them indubitably unconstitutional, except under some sort of legal state of emergency of some kind or a state of war. So after the First World War, we've mentioned many times over how the American Black Chamber, which had... Various attachments to military intelligence as well as the State Department is eventually abolished by Secretary Stimson because gentlemen do not read other gentlemen's mail. That idea is the reason that our not only many of these agencies are gone, but also even just the Army and the Navy are as incredibly small as they are in, say, the year 1935. They're tiny. And that's one reason that somebody like Dwight Eisenhower barely gets promoted between the First World War and the Second World War, because there's not much to do. (laughs) And people like, you know, Douglas MacArthur going to the Philippines to find something to do, find something to keep themselves busy. So after the Second World War, something very, very different occurs. And that is that we make our peace as a group with the growth of these things. Okay. Okay. And this relates to lots of things we talk about on the show, something I am very interested in, but haven't talked much about, which is the history of American conservatism, self-conscious conservatism, We'll, we'll get there eventually. But the big difference is that after the second world war, we let that all go. And so it's going to grow and it's going to be there. We add on a branch of service with the Air Force. Everything just expands and becomes permanent that was once temporary or unthought of or thought of as positively evil in its existence. So you're going, when you have something like that, the, the warnings in terms of liberty about institutions like that is not that on any given day, there are patriots in control of it or traitors in control of it, right? So this is where a lot of things about the Q narrative are so naive, It doesn't matter (laughs) if a good, some good guy by whatever standard you have is in control of an institution for a period of 10 years or 20 years, or, you know, new evidence reveals that, you know, Bill Barr goes to mass every single day, even if you thought he's a good guy, the, the, the critique of things like this in the American political tradition is that they corrupt you, that institutions are more powerful than men. When they outlive men, and therefore they corrupt you, and through corrupting you, they will sooner or later corrupt the republic and be the republic's downfall. That was the argument against standing armies, Mm. for example, in the early republic. And it's an argument about it's yeah, it's an argument about the nature of institutions, with the presumption that you find in the American political tradition. And I I sort of wish Lutherans grasped this more often. There is a sort of Calvinistic presumption about humanity behind our frame of government, which makes sense if you think about who lived here in colonial days. And so they're very wary of things that give men power because they're very wary of men. So if the institution is set up with enormous power, what do you think human beings are going to do with it?
1: It gets back to something that I've been um, wrestling with. Did I mention this last week? I feel like maybe I did. And this is, I think I did at the end. Uh, coming to terms with the wicked, that somewhere in in the Lutheran zeitgeist of the 20th century, mm-hmm. our focus on the second use of the law as a preaching dynamic, maybe, I mean, there was a, a little bit in the Brief History of Power Channel and Discord about uh, monergism that kind of goes this direction, but like our, our doctrine of the original sinful condition of men became a theory we use to justify our our positioning on soteriology, but not wisdom we would ever use in a conversation at the car dealership.
0: <laughs> right. right. I mean, it just, yeah, you it want just, to be as naive you, as possible in yeah, actual you d- life. You just drop yeah. it, right?
1: Right. And uh, coming to terms with, for, for me again, I, I don't think I've done this, but like, okay, so th- the wicked exist as a category of those who shall not be saved. That, that is the primary way the, the Bible speaks about them. And as such, uh, their portion is in this life. Yeah. And as such, they will abuse this life. And right. so trod on the poor, which uh, I think biblically, the poor is usually the faithful more than just those who have poverty. However, um, there's an overlap there.
0: <laughs> um, That's right. Yeah, there is an overlap. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so, um I don't know, you know, for, for wisdom's sake, if we're going to bring this back to, you know, what should you be thinking as you're listening to William Barr give his his Making the Case talk? I guess what I'd be thinking is, um, is this man wicked or not? And and bono? Like, not not trying to put um, issues, et cetera, Lutheran Public Radio in the qui bono. You, you can do that if you want. But no, no, like like for him, what what's he getting out of this? We're a pretty small audience for this guy. You know, what's he getting out of this? He's going to get, you know, a little bit of money. But, like... Uh, what's his deal what's he trying to push and why and and how does this align with my belief in the resurrection of the dead uh, my belief in the good of the local neighborhood as one which is built on families that are the the fundamental natural reality of human existence uh, is is what he says in line with that or does it follow into this more more globalist narrative of trust the state to be the parent yeah. And, and that, that'd be my question going in.
0: Yeah. And I think it's a good question. I think it it relates to another thing I had coming out of what you said a few minutes ago, which is that when we pray for those in authority, we usually, and we certainly only ever name uh, people in executive authority. Hmm. And so it's like we're training ourselves to think of even the United States of America as primarily the assemblage of people in power, the guys with, as we've said before, podiums with certain seals on them and who hold press conferences. Since that is explicitly not our frame of government, it is particularly dangerous to our frame of government and to our capacity to be citizens, to think of the Republic as largely constituted not by the people, but by those currently in power. And if you want a founding date for something like the Deep State, you could do worse than to pick the year 1947, because it is precisely the institutionalization of things that we formerly only had or did during wartime that 1947 makes possible, as well as a permanent impressive home for the department of what was by then called defense rather than war. So... Because you always need to defend yourself, right? You're not always at war, but you do always need to defend yourself. So uh, th- there is a way in which the church's prayers warp the church people's thinking about what is happening or what ought to happen or who is responsible or who should do something about it. And that's, that's the third, let's say, branch coming off what you said, which is that I think we unconsciously, maybe consciously, maybe, maybe we have listeners who are probably not regular listeners, but maybe we have somebody listening to this who is really into the unitary theory of executive authority. If you are, you have to ask yourself if objection is ever possible, because the issue here is not just the squabbles between congressmen and select committees and the executive branch. The issue is that not only is our constitution set up in a certain way, but men themselves are constituted in a way that they love to accrue to themselves executive authority, Mm -hmm. the capacity to say yes or no, the capacity to command, the capacity to kill and make alive. They love that. They would take it all if they could. All the people who believe that they are gods in the Old Testament, who in fact are not, are executives (laughs) so when you think about it that way you have to realize that not only our frame of government was erected with certain very keen anthropological insights insights about how mankind is and what his natural vices are but also that the executive when empowered is far more detrimental to the welfare of the nation than anything else. I mean, much more is on the line, I would say, because for example, the executive could refuse to enforce, say, a judicial ruling, or it could enforce it lightly, or it could enforce it with extreme prejudice. All of those things are on the table. So there's, I don't want to say, oh, it doesn't matter But the idea that especially the office of the presidency should be aggrandized as an efficient way of making decisions is something that, not so much Warren Harding, who I think was largely drunk much of his presidency, but Calvin Coolidge, who was certainly not drunk much of his presidency, consciously rejected after the first world war, they consciously rejected the idea that the president needs to be in the news every day, that that should be a main concern of the American people. So its articulation and then enunciation as if it is truly conservative is flatly wrong.
1: Yeah, I, I, we may disagree on this, but I think, I think we end up in the same place. But I'm not convinced that we can actually get away from monarchy. I think we try, and there's various ways of trying to check the monarch, but it's always king of the hill. And so, like, I mean, you just said it, someone's always trying to get that scepter. They're trying to get the crown. Whether or not it's actually a crown or not, it uh, doesn't matter. In fact, I would say that at this point, the globalists figured out that you don't, you don't want to be seen with a crown on if you want to hold on to power. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the king's always going to king. So you can create this office, you can call it president, you can give all the checks and balances, and you can say, we're going to hold you so you can only do the things we absolutely need you to do. And while a good guy's in that position, he, has, he shares your theory. You know, now, now it works out. As soon as uh, someone else is in that position, now they begin to tinker with it and move it where they want it to move. And this is where the, the Republic, to me, remains a, a, a platonic theory. That doesn't mean I don't like it or wish that we could do it or love to live in it when it works. It's just I'm – just, I'm kind of convinced this is the way it goes. That The king, even if you don't call him king, is always going to king. And that involves corruption of himself, usually, unless he's Jesus. And then this is where. So my, my question is, and and I want you don't don't get like too narrow serious on this. Like, take the metaphor for what it is. Um, like, is isn't Robin Hood sort of always necessary? And and where is he right? I mean, he's he's the prince of thieves, right? Like they they as a Christian, we were like, you know stealing's wrong, right? And we, and we have to say that and yet at a certain point, what Robin hood is, is a man of integrity. Right. And, and he's a man who says that, um, that, that, the king has overstepped his kingship and is, is harming the poor. And so I'm going to feed the poor, which actually makes him the king at that point. He's, he's the real guy doing the job. So I'm curious what your own interplay in that metaphor is, if you've had any, and maybe we can turn this a little bit into that conversation about when is it right, um, as a Christian, to do violence. Uh, And not that Robin necessarily is a one-to-one, but I do, I think it's a good metaphor for it.
0: Well, any, any king, any authority whatsoever is going to run up against not only his own vices, but also hard limits to his power, whether those are pushed by someone else actively or whether they are seemingly almost natural disasters for his administration or, or reign or however his you know, term of office is conceived of. So when we're thinking about those, we're thinking about the limits that, let's say, kings in the ancient Near East and the Old Testament did not recognize on themselves, thinking that they would live forever, that their reign would endure forever, that they would not be weighed and found wanting. There is something in any king in that way That is arrogant, meaning he's taking to himself something that does not belong to himself. I don't think that Robin Hood, let's say metaphorically, is necessary because it seems much more common historically that people simply submit to slavery and that the king dies sooner or later, that revolts against forms of unendurable evil are relatively uncommon and so for example you you get plenty of very articulate reaction to the vast change in the american presidency that takes place with franklin delano roosevelt who is elected by a very different coalition largely composed of people who had whose families had been in america or had come to america that is since the Civil War. So that is the antithesis of who who Coolidge is and, and who was supporting Coolidge or Hoover. But that new coalition is coupled together. And then a very different conception of what the president is supposed to be doing, that the president should do this or that. In the first 100 days, this or that will be achieved. All of those things happened. And people who really had very little stake And the political fortunes of, you know, the New York dominated coalition that FDR came to power with, people in say Tennessee benefited materially from certain things that FDR was doing that were at best a stretch. Should he be doing this? Is this allowed? Is this what the federal government is for? And objections to things like, should the state do this, you know, or should the federal government do this in a time of need and necessity are not recognized. Any time of need or necessity is a very opportune crisis for a man with an eye for crises. So he saw that, his political advisors saw that. And so now they have the multi-generational down to kind of the beginning of public school busing loyalty of Southern whites because they helped them out of grinding poverty in 1934 you know now did they or didn't they in every case did we really only recover economically from 1929 because we got into the second world war those are those are matters for debate what i'm saying is that i don't think robin hood is actually in any way necessary or even or 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 normal in any sense because most people seem just to put up with it. I mean Shanghai is in lockdown again as we say this and maybe they're doing that to scare us and maybe they're doing that to set a precedent for our governments, but I don't I don't see Robin Hood's as as, as normal.
1: But I do see yeah. riots. I do see people pillaging supermarkets. I do see people saying I'm going to I'm going to feed my family. I for Chinese to be doing what they're doing in Shanghai in response mm-hmm. to the government to me seems very unlike what I normally would expect out of the Chinese population. Like there's a point, Mm -hmm. there's a limit where the man of integrity simply just won't anymore. And you're right. I completely agree. Like if, if the King is wise um, in, in his tact, uh, he does it in such a way that you just kind of roll with it. Like I'll just live in the squalor and it's easier to do that than to, than to stand up. But there's a point where like, you know, the, the twig doesn't bend, it snaps. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah.
0: I, well, starvation is, is, is something that is rather extreme. And since the Green Revolution has been relatively uncommon, even worldwide, when you think about foreign aid sent to Africa, for example, you should probably think about that as a program for making sure that such places are politically stable, because without that aid, many of them Uh, Many of those countries, especially your your really agriculturally fringy African countries, like say Chad or Niger, would have an, an enormously difficult problem on their hands because they now have a Western modern capacity or at least some capacity for sanitation and declining infant mortality. So they have exploding populations that are increasingly urbanized. Therefore, don't feed themselves. And they have in I mean, they had difficulty feeding themselves before they had those populations in those cities. So this is something where Quigley's framework for world history is extremely helpful because when he says, you know, it really does matter which set of, so to speak, revolutions you go through and in what order you go through them. If you never go through your own agricultural revolution and you're still being fed, for instance, by the American, essentially the American government, Hmm. you know, then we have a very volatile situation on our hands. Something that has changed, especially between this crisis and the great depression even is the American government's capacity to directly affect the lives of its own people through electronic fund transfer, but also through its capacity to regulate so much food, fuel, and so forth. And those capacities of control are so much greater than they were 90 years ago during the Great Depression, that when I think about potential of food shortages, I'm not so much thinking that we're going to have a problem of there simply is nothing. We're going to have distribution problems, and we're also going to have qualification problems. You know, when the Ukra- when Ukraine starved to death in the 1930s, it wasn't necessarily because the Ukraine is somehow like infertile and remote. it's It's the breadbasket of the Soviet Union and of many things still today. It starved to death because people wanted it to starve to death. It was a political enemy. it was a source of unrest and and so on. so, Those capacities of control are the things that I think are threatening. Yeah. The Chinese are going to revolt against that. The question is, the question is not so much, is there anger in the population? I think any, any moderately competent ruler will realize that there's, there's some mixture of anger, there's admiration, there's fear, there's whatever, but not, are they angry, but what are they going to do about it on day 14? Right. Right. You know? right? Because, yeah, riots happen. Riots happen. Urban areas are always like the most volatile part of any regime. But what do they, I mean, are they going to burn down the city forever? I mean, at some point I could even say, well, I'll just accept that because then if it's the US, you know, if it's Los Angeles after 1968 or 1992, hey, this is going to be such an enormous boon for real estate. So, you know, go for it. Burn some more stuff down. We'll just rezone it and redevelop it, you know, and we're all gonna make money off this. The issue, I don't think, is momentary reaction. It's it's what are you gonna do about it on day 14 or month five or year seven or whatever.
1: I think one of the things that makes that make even more sense. And this is this is one that I still have trouble like socially, spiritually, emotionally believing that this is is the game plan. But when the game plan is depopulation, then it it, it doesn't matter. You go ahead, do that, right? You go ahead and starve yourself out, struggle, uh, burn, fail, because we who have the sword, we who have the guns, we who have the regulatory control, we honestly don't care about you. And I think still for us on in the commoners, as we are, uh, raised in Americana... That's just a hard one to actually believe. Uh, again, this and that gets back to not really believing in the wicked. Uh, that we think that there's <laughs> yeah, there's exactly. this kind of conscience at work, right? right? Even 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 Klaus Schwab's got he's got a conscience, doesn't he? And and we have trouble uh, believing that there is, at the very least, a, a leading power, group of powers, uh, yeah. ideology that, that is inconscionable so far as we are concerned. And in that, uh, please, yeah. please be ready to go on that <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. I listened to I don't always listen to this, this podcast but unlimited hangout with Whitney Webb um, had a roundtable on on uh, Russia and uh, especially since I recently got accused of, of being a Russian disinformation spreader on my <laughs> YouTube channel. Um, I thought it'd be great to listen to a, a really good. It was uh, the great reset was the topic and they had uh, two people who believe Russia's in on it and two people who believe Russia what they're doing is trying to stop it and and it was, so it was really really fascinating but they all agreed on this this. They all agreed that there is a global plan for depopulation and stupidification of the common people to get us from $9 billion to more like $1 billion that will be managed through a technocratically programmed system. Pharma Central, central Bank dealing with the digital currency. So they, they all agree with that, but they just had different viewpoints on where Russia is in that, right? And so okay. um, I can recommend okay. this. It's a long listen, and the, the people get too angry at each other about their opinions, given that they both, they all kind of agree with what we would agree with, I think. Um, but this idea that Intentional depopulation and stupidification of the people is the game plan from the elites, and they yeah. don't care if you end up in a bad place because of that. They kind of need it to be that way because from their end, they're not going to lose money. They're not going to lose what they have. They're, they're pretty convinced their system's going to hold together um, because they're going to retain regulatory control of the goods. Yeah. And, and as long as their central currency works out, I mean that just that just won't not happen. There's there's nothing that's going to make them not be able to get the food that remains. They will have the guns, and you won't. Mm.
0: I I think that pertains to what I was going to say about conscience because I think people simply misunderstand the word conscience. Means this really sub rational capacity to feel, practically speaking maybe with anxiety in your gut or something that something is right or wrong or good or bad. It has no specific relationship to any judgment, right? It it doesn't mean that you're judging correctly. So, Oh, he has a conscience. My question is what's in his conscience, because if what's in his conscience is a very standard set of ideas originating from his social class, from his education, from the fact that he grew up during the cold war, didn't grow up during the cold war. That's what matters. It doesn't. Yes. Of course he has a conscience. The question is what is inside of his conscience and part of the difficulty. I, I believe people have in thinking that someone simply doesn't care about them. Someone in charge of them simply doesn't care about them. The, the most basic reason for that is that they, they haven't read the Bible so they do not have a true estimation of human nature. That's, that's the absolute simplest answer. That's the glib. If I were on Twitter, the answer I would give. The less glib version of that is the reason people believe somebody truly doesn't care about them is because they don't know those other people well enough to understand how disconnected they are. When I have known people who are some sort of, you know, seventh rank, you know, Mandarin in our regime, they inevitably have been to multiple foreign countries, almost always both coasts. If they were from somewhere in between there, they were from a college town or maybe Chicago or something. They have been financially, economically, educationally, and every other adverb you can think of cut off from you, the hoi polloi. So they don't even know you that how could they possibly care about you they have disdain for you that was baked in by many of those processes especially their educations and they don't understand the connection between you and the functioning of the country they still live in and and rule over in various ways so they don't know anything about you you might as well be a slave that speaks a foreign language they don't understand In a field on their plantation. That's what you are. So when you understand that, then you can understand their indifference or their hostility or their incomprehension, which is something that you saw, especially with the rise of Trump. Trump, I don't find that hard to explain as a phenomenon arising out of the American body politic about which people on assorted farmsteads all across the United States are still so excited they have signs up or now they have new Trump 2024 signs or whatever, that's really not that hard to explain. If you know people, what their instincts are, what they think is right and wrong, but our regime doesn't know us by and large, just doesn't doesn't know us, let alone care about us. So what's in their conscience is not at all what is in your conscience, dear listener. And as long as you remember that, you don't have to be so disappointed, I guess, because I think that If we're talking about Russia specifically, there's a mistake here that is native, especially if you remember a time when the Soviet Union existed, because this was largely true in the time period between 1945 and 1991, which is the major conflict in the world for which most other things are proxies is an essentially ideological conflict And because it's an ideological conflict between communism and capitalism, between slavery and freedom, between whatever and whatever, because of that, we should think about the world in basically ideological terms. Therefore, I have to pick and I have to posit that although Alexander Dugan has supported gender fluidity as a notion and his relationship is fairly tight with the Putin administration... And although the Putin administration has brought enormous numbers of Muslim migrants from Central Asia into Moscow, despite these things, (laughs) Putin is, you know, totally based and amazing and Christian, and maybe he is more Christian. I'm certain he is more Christian than most people in our regime. I don't have to decide ideologically. It's not a video game. I don't have to pick a side and play for it. The world is not divided up in two right? So I don't see this as like, oh, America's power is now passing away. That's true from a certain military perspective, because we're not intervening. But I I do not accept the Cold War terms as relevant anymore, that when something occurs in the world, I have to pick a side as if it's some kind of, I don't know, religious debate. And if I don't pick the right side, I'm going to go to hell. Secular version of going to hell is, History will not judge me kindly, right? I don't need to do that. I suspect, by virtue of you know, what it's been intertwined with for the past, gee, it's been 31 years, but that Russia is somehow, you know, maybe in many, many ways, many, many somehow, connected to the international economic system that is the heart of whatever we mean by globalism. Sure, I believe that. So Maybe this is just one bad guy fighting another bad guy. I don't really know. And, you know, I my major political concern is that we not get engaged as we've talked about. But I don't therefore need to pick a side like here's the great side, here's the bad side, you know.
1: That was my favorite I, takeaway from, from yeah. the podcast. I, I don't remember the guy's name. He's the one with the British accent. If you listen to it by the end of it, he kind of says, look, I, th- I think we all sort of agree. It's just whether some of us think one guy's good or one guy's bad, but one way or the other, you have multiple regimes pushing for technocratic control. It's just mm-hmm. who's going to be in control yeah. at the end of it. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah and 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 the scale of things here does matter because it's going to be it's very hard to be a unitary state the size of Russia and not nurse as does China and as does the United States of America and not nurse world ambitions and Russia controls what the theorist Halford Mackinder called the world island it and China collectively control the world island that is that the heart of the globe is in Eurasia, not, you know, Central Asia combined with Far Eastern Europe. And whoever has control over that controls movement on that entire land mass, which is true. Spice road. Yeah. And so, you know, that's something different from saying, well, you know, something that, if I have to pick an ideological side, let's say, right, a regime that the Russians have supported very, very actively is the Assad regime in, in Syria. I, I have much more definite support for that regime, partly because it actually keeps the peace in its own place. And the, the alternatives are either domination by the Israelis or domination by Islamists. And therefore, being neither dominated by Israelis nor the Islamists, it is generally hated internationally. But therefore, also like pre-invasion Iraq, is a better place for Christians to exist than almost anywhere else in the Middle East. So Syria at its current size cannot nurse world ambitions. Good, you know. Russia at its current size, even with the best motivations in the world, and this is where I, this is sort of like what I said about American government earlier, geography is in this way more important than any given leader. And its geography since its colonization of the Far East and of Siberia in the 19th century, its geography will lead it to nurse world ambitions that they could have wonderful motivations. They could have awful motivations. It doesn't matter. (laughs) The, The desire is global and ambitious. So that's always bad. That's always bad. And it has been the demise of our polity that we had some sort of at least projected control over the globe. Hmm. It was bad for us, bad for the British before us. So if the Russians are trying to do that now, or they're trying to do it in concert with the Chinese, who are the new lords of Africa, no African country ever particularly being the lord of Africa. If that's the case, then to my mind, we're replacing one kind of hegemony with another. But because it is stepping outside the borders of where it has been allotted to control, even by some sort of confluence of natural and technological forces, such as, I don't know, railroads in the American spread westward, then it's going to sooner or later be at least as evil as we are. Maybe not in the same ways, but at least. (laughs) So that's why I'm not picking a side in this case.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the beast out of the sea is always going to gnash its teeth and crunch on stuff. Um, Yeah okay. So shifting gears to our, our other writing question, by the way, you can send in questions. We yes, won't always answer them, but you can send in questions to uh, briefhistorypower.com. brief I believe there's a contact link there. If you'd like to hear us talk about what you think. So, um, this one comes in, I, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to try to summarize this. Uh, he says, I, you know, I love your guys inside. My friends and I discuss and debate your episodes. Why you don't just sit in and, and just absorb and
0: assume or write about everything. <laughs> You're supposed to listen passively yeah. five yeah, times. That's, in
1: that's a row. right. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, given your excellent historical knowledge, I think he's referring to you. I was wondering if you could help with this. I was tasked recently by one of our guys with getting an answer to the following questions. First, do you know of any groups, current or historic, that were able to construct a society, organization, company, denomination that was able to stay largely free of infiltration and co-option by creeping liberalism and those who orchestrate such co-options and subversions for a long period of time, generations, hundreds of years, etc. If so, who and why? How... Were they able to do this is the second question. And I think that's really what it's really all about, right? It's like, mm-hmm. where are the people who got it to work, get it to work, and it stayed working? Um, and yeah, you're, you didn't read the Bible enough, uh, really, if you're still hunting for an answer to that. Uh, what should we learn from them practically to apply in the current year? And I don't want to, I, to dismiss the question too heavily. It's just, you're not going to get a system that stays except the Lord's Supper. Like, like the Lord's Supper is going to stay until he comes back, and everything else we build around it is going to crash at some point. It's going to be co-opted. But... If you were to try to have it not be co-opted for like three generations, right? Where yeah, where have you yeah. seen this work? Now he lists some answers: the pa- the Papists, the Orthodox, uh, the Mohammedans, Switzerland, just out of left field. Um, yeah. uh, and you know you can kind of engage those. Uh, I know you read through this, so so what what yeah. are your answers?
0: Yeah, and I would say that it is telling that he brought up the four examples he did in the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, Islam. Dar al Islam and Switzerland, because to outsiders, those institutions or networks of people and places and ways of doing things appear to be unchanging. And that is something that, both in theology as well as in politics, is very, very dangerous to believe that there is anything that is not subject to change. And if it's subject to change, that could be good, but it could also be bad. We're all subject to decay. And there is even the hunch that you'll see stated as if it's obvious, also in the Lutheran confessions, but throughout Luther, especially in the Genesis commentaries, that the world is winding down. Therefore, things are actually getting worse than they used to be. So take that for what it's worth. But I think there is an illusion and I, I, the example with which I am most familiar, rather intimately familiar, is the Amish. So I'm going to use them because they have the exact same thing. I mean, people think they're a living museum. That's why they're taking pictures of them, because they think, oh, this is a little piece of the 19th century. That's not how you survive. So there are at least kind of two directions to go in here. One is that you survive by identifying what it is that you are trying to do and then staying obsessively focused on that and sacrificing other things that you could do to that. So in the case of the Amish, there's a, you can find pictures of the Amish driving cars because there was a time, and there are some who still call themselves Amish who do, that's a different story, but the vast majority of them, there was a time when they did, and then they sacrificed that individual capacity to drive and therefore to, I mean, the automobile is extremely liberating. I think that's why they're trying to to take it away <laughs> by saying that it's, you know, reducing your capacity with electric vehicles and then finally saying that this is making it too expensive and so on because it liberates, right? It lets you go. They said, we're going to sacrifice our community's existence to this individual freedom. And that has preserved the community in ways that has obviously not been preserved by other denominations in the United States of America. So that's one thing, right, is that you you have to have a very clear collective stated, okay, you can't just assume you're all on the same page or skip over the discussion portion or not make sure that you're all on the same page despite the guy who's being quiet over there. You have to make sure you're, you have to submit your own opinion, your own thoughts, your own practices to collective decision-making and then implement it thoroughly. I mean, you just have to. You don't have another option. That's you have collectives in the four things that he mentioned at various levels. You have it in anything that endures is that the individual subsumes himself for the good of the collective. That's also true in the United States of America. I mean, that I I know that individualism is like supposed to be the most horrible thing in the world. It's also the way that you survive when no one's going to come to help you, okay? So, it's kind of baked into our psyche that way because of the frontier, but Those people on the frontier weren't, when they encountered other people, behaving in wildly selfish, individualistic ways that we do. Even though we have a much higher population density, we probably live right next to somebody. They knew the guy that was three miles away. Okay. They opened their home to him. You can see this, you know, so you have to subsume yourself if you want to survive, either short term or long term. And then the group has to have some kind of clearly articulated. This is what we're for. We're trying to get to heaven. We're trying to preserve the glory of the third Rome. We're trying to you know, expand the house of Islam. We're trying to make sure that Switzerland doesn't get invaded in this world war, whatever the case may be. right? right. But the second part of that is the acceptance that in addition to subsuming yourself, you also realize that you will be subject to historical change. And you're gonna have to figure out how to make that happen. Most human groups make that happen by trying to become normative, okay? Just in kind of sociology terms, how do we look at human groups? They try to become normative, right? By saying, we are the way that things work here, right? And those those groups are gonna be formed into what we would now recognize as states, generally speaking with a religion, with a judicial capacity, with some kind of military capacity, those things that are normal for human groups to have. Where that you know, full-fledged, we're going to do everything functioning is negated for whatever reason, then your option is to become what in sociological terms is sectarian, just meaning you're apart from general society. It's probably where many listeners are interested in being or think it is realistic to be. And you're probably right about that. You're probably not going to be normative. You're not a state in waiting as at various times, maybe, or, or maybe even today, the, the mainstream Mormon church is with a command structure and, and assets and lots of things, really. So you're going to be sectarian. If you're sectarian, then you have to recognize that you're going to be subject to change, maybe very intensively from the outside, but also from the inside. So if you're interested in things like this, you need to study historical examples, so that you're aware of how these things break down. They could break down for very simple reasons. You, you know, you don't, you're trying to do something and you really don't have the people to do it. You, nobody really knows how to farm self-sufficiently in your group. So that's why it's not going well or you don't know what you're getting yourself into, or you didn't look up the soil type or whatever the case may be. But when you're sectarian, the pressures from the outside are also obviously fairly large, but usually unknown to or forgotten by the larger society. I've mentioned before that the Amish, many Amish went to jail in order to school their children and to take them out of the public school system. So the group therefore also has to recognize its well-being as so important that it's willing to endure those things on the way to getting to a point where it can do what it believes is the right thing.
1: And not to like like go way back and and beat a dead horse here, but like <laughs> and and I I don't want anyone who's my parishioner to like hear me black pilling, but what what is Lutheranism got? Dear heavens, what do we've got? And I'm not talking about in our confessions because I know what I've got in our confessions. Would that it were a unifying factor for us. But anybody who's on the ground knows it's not. What what do we got? Sectarianism. Like, the reason why Lutheranism is falling apart is the demographic issue. That's one, for sure. But also, like, we've, we bought the line, you guys are sectarian. And we're like, no, we're not. We swear we won't be. We got to change and not be sectarian. Like, we've actually bought into the idea that standing apart and being different is not in our interest. How can you reverse that now um, when you are already stratified, uh, when you're, I mean, I am blackpilling a little bit, the, the, you know, your institutions have been have been co-opted. Um, we're watching our Concordias, you know, of course, have, have battles uh, uh, for all manner of ideology. Uh, in the meantime, the word theology for years has been sort of like poo-pooed as a concept. Like theology, what's that for, you know? Um, and so uh what have we got here uh what is lutheranism as a concept willing to sacrifice and i know there's guys out there like well we are we'll go off and there'll be all 10 of us in a corner and we'll be the confessional lutheran synod forever and ever okay okay but but no one's going to join you because well you, what are you for again right you're you're just against rome or you're against the baptists you're against this um I don't even know if I said anything there, but I'm sure you can pull something out of it.
0: (laughs) I, I think that what we have is we have the confession of faith, and then we have the people God has given us. I don't really think of the institutions as necessary. They could exist. They could not exist. Historically speaking, there are lots of people that have come back from much worse things than we're facing right now. And probably than any of us is going to face in our lifetimes, um, states, ethnic groups, churches that have been decimated, persecuted to near extinction, and they have come back. So the things that are falling apart in anyone's church, and I mean, honestly, we, we don't have the same problems that the, that Roman Catholics do, where we have something much more powerful and truly global that is... I think rather horribly opposed to its own best people. Yeah, right. You know, we, we don't have that. And so I, I, I guess I am relatively more hopeful, but that's also because I, I don't see the institutions as essential or definitive in any way. They, they can come and go. It, it really doesn't matter. And there were things that other groups in the United States have set their hearts on And especially the ones that were most and best institutionally integrated, which we now identify as mainline Protestants, you know, they had all kinds of institutional advantages and really had succeeded in ways that we never have socially, but even demographically, as far as their spread, you know, there was at least at one time in recent history, a United Methodist church in every county in the United States. That's, that's pretty good. That was the only church you could say that of, but those things are themselves falling apart because that is a lot of weight. So what a church has is the people inside of it and whatever it actually believes. I mean, actually believes and that will get sorted out in times of crisis. And that will be, as we've talked about with COVID, but will certainly prove true in the future. That will be salutary. That'll be good. So when I look at the future, I I see actually less institutional decay in us that matters than many others. Honestly, I wish we were a little better set up for a time in which we would be a lot more unpopular than we have been. But, you know, I mean, it's always difficult for human groups to focus on anything other than the present. So that doesn't really surprise me. The reason the Mormons are different is because they were persecuted violently Multiple times, and a war was prosecuted against their their nascent state in what was then Mexico. So, you know, <laughs> that's affected them. So, not having that, I'm not really surprised that we weren't all that ready for the future. And we invested a lot of time because of the media and the way that the media taught us to think. In I think, complaining about how things were getting worse or trying to explain how we were different. We weren't invested in American civil religion or something. And that was fine, but I think it was essentially a distraction. So, you know, we're, we'll figure it out. I, I guess I, th- I talk to a lot of people that give me hope for these things all over the place. And so I, I, th- I think something will be okay. We will be okay. I just don't know what we will be called, <laughs> right, or what institutions we will have, or anything like that.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really yeah. good. And and there was another Discord conversation recently that I piped in on, but it, it kind of had gone this way already. Mm-hmm. The church body is kind of a myth. I mean, it's not a bad idea clearly i i would agree with walther like it but it is the duty of the christian congregation which is a local thing to seek out others that share its faith and to in that seek accountability to seek to further the mission of christ and to seek to prepare pastors for service wherever so it's not as though the congregation is free just to ignore the world with that said All of the decay issues that we're talking about in this question, you know, how do we set up a society and avoid this? And all the places where the co-option happens that destroy so quickly are on that broader scale. Can a congregation be co-opted and destroyed? Yes, but not all of them will be. Yep. And that is where, right now, if there is a place where we, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, or others like us—I know we have other Lutherans listening, we have other Christians listening—if there's yep. a place where we are still strong, it is in those local congregations where the Bible is still opened, and people are still taught from the Bible that Jesus rose from the dead— that. He's the eternally begotten Son of God, that his flesh and blood are ever going to be given for you, and that we should listen to him because that makes him kind of exceedingly wise on all matters. And if you want to take that all the way to apologetics on six day creation, you certainly can and probably should. Um, but that is the outflow of your faithful commitment to being a people of his word. Trusting that that institution will outlast anything else is my first answer to this question. Anything else that we build on top of it can be co-opted. You you cannot co-opt Word and Sacrament for the devil. It, it cannot be done. It will it will it will bind itself back into right. You get an unbeliever up there and have him preach what it actually says. He's going to make believers, I and mean, we confess that because it's true. Um, and so in that, uh, take great comfort if and when and where you still find a local congregation that that didn't shut down, that shut down and learned its lesson, uh, that's at least got some of you there that don't want it to shut down again. Begin having those conversations now. How do we survive when the world says go right and we know we need to go left right now? How do we avoid letting uh, Caesar tell us how to manage our congregational affairs on Sunday morning? Uh, That is not just a place to fight right now. It is that too, but it's a place for hope. If you even have that fight on the ground that, that's an absolute place for hope because that's the thing that that endures you know think yeah. back to the early church and and how many congregations were there really i mean it's, it's, there there weren't that many, and so like you said dr coons um our, our how just because we've fallen from being the uh, the kings of of northern Europe in the sixteen hundreds and having a golden era, and no longer does anyone even know what we stand for uh does not mean that that the gospel is not the seed of the kingdom. And insofar as wherein the Lutheran Church remains a church that believes He has risen means something, changes things. Uh, there, there is no hopelessness at all. There, uh, we're just just right. giving up the world. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm I'm going to a local congregation, and God willing, I'm I'm looking to start local congregations throughout the U.S. Both both because there's enormous opportunity. But but I also find enormous excitement when people realize that something positive and upbuilding, especially, you know, new altars, new fonts, new pulpits, that those things are actually possible. <laughs> I think people have for a long time been just mired in, in hopelessness and, and sadness, and they have watched their churches decay. And I'm sure more of that will take place, but this is not the main movement of the kingdom. And, you know, he is, he is still risen. So he wants to, he wants to reign openly. And uh, that's, that's what we're looking to extend.
1: With that. Can, can I bring it back then to a little more despair for just a second? Uh, <laughs> sure. Cause you mentioned sort of the hopelessness and, and as, I've been in the ministry in this church body a little longer than you, but you've been watching for a while. Like mission has been a thing we've talked about a lot while we've watched it, not really achieve what we've wanted it to achieve. And I think that's where some of the hopelessness comes. And because we've got, we've got this idea and that idea and we're going to try this and we're going to do that and we're going to plan this and this is going to happen. And yet it continues to shrink and that's where if if there is not a reckoning with demographic integrity, I don't know what good putting up altars is going to do. Don't get me wrong. I believe that when you go and you say he has risen is true, but there's a point at which if it's not worth passing on to kids, if it's not worth having the kids that naturally would come about so that it can be passed on to, why do you think your neighbor's going to care? And I think that's a fair reckoning question for us. As the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, we we have you know to the level where this argument used to be made. It's like you don't you just believe in having children. You don't really believe in mission. It's like like why would you pit that against each other ever? And that shows you why we're collapsing again. Is, is There was a time, I said this to some friends this morning, there was a time when the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod was very effective in converting people to its way of thinking. It went something like this. Hi, we're the only true church on earth. We have the true gospel and you don't. And so you might just be going to hell if you don't believe what we believe. Now we scoff at that. Now we mock that point of view. Now, I'm not saying, you know, it's, it's the first foot to put forward every time, but there was something valuable in believing that you were set apart and had something no one else had. And for that very reason, to be willing to receive the gifts that God gives. So th- this may be a little different than the demographic integrity question, but, um, you know, in your mission plans, uh, you know, how, how does demographics fit into that as a, as a reckoning?
0: Do you mean expected decline, or do you mean growth in a specific county? Or
1: I mean, I mean dealing with the fact that there are there are large percentages of Lutheran peoples who believe that we can survive while retaining an American view of family as small and controlled by Planned Parenthood.
0: Well, I mean, I I think that time sorts out many things. So I guess, and this is, maybe we're just, you know, just talking purely out of our personalities at this point. I guess I don't worry about it. <laughs> You're funny. I love it. Because, I love it. Be, because, because time will sort out a group that is not interested in its own extension. And that's where, you know, the notion of converting adults who did not grow up in the church or did not grow up in, in any church, Versus, you know, having children and raising them in the faith. Yeah, those are not to be pitted against each other. They're both the extension of the word of God, and God loves new life, whether in the family or in the family of the church. So, I, I don't, I don't worry about obstacles to that, impediments to that, both because of how I understand God's God's joy over sinners repenting to be so. I want to go find them and I want to rejoice with the angels. So that's just pretty basic to me and to my thinking. But also because things that are in error, that are opposed to the word of God, they, they will and do fall by the wayside. That's, that's simply the way it goes. So, yeah.
1: Isn't, isn't that imperative? I think it's important not only in terms of demographics, but in terms of uh, Lutherans being embarrassed to be Lutherans.
0: I, the re the reason I don't know is that contrary to what maybe the listeners believe, I don't know nearly as much about the Lutheran church, Missouri synod, as you would think, based on what I do for a living. And, and where I currently live, Pastor Fist knows a lot more than I do about this and a different side of it. Maybe I, I don't find, I, I, I do not, I do not have either the interest in, or the knowledge of or therefore i think also the despair about lutheranism that i would have if i had known it my whole life or known it from a different angle or something i mean the church that i came into the lutheran church through it doesn't exist anymore so that's sad but that doesn't deter me or daunt me that that motivates me so i mean we have seen these things we have seen Sentences passed on many sad things already I mean collapse is already happening outside of places where we have some kind of you know remnant demographic strength that's true for every church in the United States so I mean I guess i I guess I'm from the collapse you know i'm I'm already post collapse I guess so that's why I don't think about this question very much because it's like, what does it even matter I mean they're not it's not like no one came to help out when that was collapsing so why would i worry about it now
1: i love that um there's something i have noticed about your age bracket and you know we got about a decade between us here um and uh your age bracket of of bracket of pastor and also the the guys that i've seen that are involved in the seminary or or headed in that direction right now and your, your phrase post-collapse is, is kind of nice. And maybe it's just that I, I saw it before the collapse and I'm still sort of mad about that. And, uh, <laughs> uh cause, cause like, it's, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, you know, we could have, uh, it's not the best metaphor, but you know, if you don't turn the Titanic, it hits the iceberg and goes through the iceberg and you're fine. Right. So y- yeah. we really could have just driven through this a little better, but then again, you know, if, if, if wishes were fishes and all this kind of stuff, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I want is to learn from it, and and what I want is to find, I guess, the conviction in my own part um, to to speak boldly where I need to. And so, the demographic issue again continues to be one that that I wonder about, precisely because and i'm i'm even thinking locally in my own parish right mm-hmm. where i'm serving i'm serving all sorts of people in my parish they don't all listen to this show and they certainly if they did might not be very happy about it but i serve them jesus every week and i teach them about the scriptures and i pray that they come to us a, a place of wisdom and every so often, I'll hear something come out of their mouth, that's one of these sort of just very American, very anti-family statements. And especially, this comes from women in a certain certain age bracket that that still hold to uh, the water that they were raised in. And and what I'm longing for at some point is is a place where that just we at least realize what a stupid lie that was. Um, and, uh, you know, as a pastor, how do I handle that person at that time? Um, you know, that, that's, I guess what I'm wrestling with publicly. You look at that. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's bigger than that because I don't think I'm alone in this. I think that, that this is actually still really a big deal. And to some extent we, we can't stay silent about it. I agree with you completely that naturally, like the people who have kids are the future. Like they're just gonna be, sure. um, but I'm living right now. <laughs> um, and I want more. Kids in my kids' future, and I want to convince people that that's that's not the gospel, but because of the gospel, it's worth believing. Uh, because Jesus is a pretty wise guy, again, I don't think he made a lot of mistakes, if any, in what he taught us to think.
0: So, I did this paper on this topic, biblical theology of human fertility. It's on it's on the internet. You can find it if you haven't seen it or, or read it, and. The reactions were overwhelmingly positive. There were some negative reactions. That was fine. I, I anticipate that. It was an audience largely, probably closer entirely of pastors and, and theological students. And that is the group that has to talk about things like this first. That is the kind of collective decision-making that's incumbent upon us. I don't really care if every pastor sitting there or any, any, everyone who's ever watch that or listen to it, utterly agrees with every word I said. And I think that that is the difficulty is that both pastors, but also people want to have a group that simultaneously believes the right things and everyone always agrees. And those two things are mutually contradictory. In order to believe the right things, there has to be a process of discussion That's really the first step people have to understand and not a process of discussion like a denomination gets into when it's on its way to ordaining women or approving of homosexuality or something. I mean, a process of discussion of the scripture that is open in which people are participating. So in a congregation, this needs to happen in a Bible class and a circuit, this has to happen at the circuit meeting and synod, there has to be time for people to discuss doctrine and not just kind of a guided Bible study with loaded questions. When that exists, you have people who are thinking and they think something different from you, or they think something not even contradictory necessarily, but from a totally different angle, or you have somebody that doesn't like the terms you're using or thinks you should use different terms. You have to accept that that's going to occur. If you can't let that happen or if that never happens, you shouldn't at all be surprised that your church is falling apart in various ways because people need to be able to figure out what is going on and to understand what is going on. And therefore, the leadership also has to be comfortable with the idea that someone disagrees with him or doesn't doesn't like what he's saying right then or something like that, but that the stakes of disagreeing aren't that you therefore just like walk out the door forever. And so there are factors here that are internal that we do have to fix, I think ourselves, but there are external factors that are really hard to fix, which is that you could walk out the door and never come back. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter in this life. So you're not going to get legally punished or something like that. So there are, there are things over which we have control and that would largely be those, those collective processes That whether we remain in any way normal within American society or whether we become self-consciously or or maybe even involuntarily sectarian, we have to have in order to exist as a group. Uh, The group can't exist with presumptive belonging, presumptive orthodoxy, presumptive whatever else, because obviously that doesn't function very well. In order for it to endure, it has to be both proclaimed and discussed and taught and reflected upon.
1: And not, not to go to Peter Drucker rather than Solomon, but, uh, you know, there's a bus. It's going somewhere. And if you've got people on the bus that don't want to go there, they got to get off the bus. And what that means for us, I think, with these conversations is being okay with someone who walks away because they don't believe what we believe. And, and at a certain point as a church body, that's how we unify. Not, not by driving people out, um, but by acknowledging through these conversations. Like if somebody really is for women's ordination, like they, they, they don't belong. And they can get upset and leave. And that, that's actually probably good for us once we go through that. The question is, do we have the, um, the backbone you know, to endure that kind of conversation, to believe what we believe firmly enough that we don't feel bad because we've lost out on the gospel of respectability, uh, and and to uh, be rejoicing in the, what, the suffering for the gospel that's going to lead us to plant a seed that we know is a pure seed, uh, which is going to grow. If yeah. you're listening to a brief history of power, you know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.